last Sunday afternoon, uh, Holly and I had the opportunity to provide child care for our PBC Kids volunteer workers. Uh, we had a training last Sunday, and uh, I don't usually get to spend a lot of time working in children's ministry, uh, so I was excited to spend some time with the kiddos. And the first thing I did is I sat all the kids down, I think there was 11 kiddos, uh, around a table, and we all walked through an icebreaker question, and that took like 30 minutes for 11 kids. Uh, and uh, then we started to read, I started to read to them a children's book from the bookstall about how God makes each one of us unique. And so I'm, I'm reading this story, and we're about halfway through, and then one of our moms dropped off one of our really little ones, and the baby began to cry. Now, at this point, I've been able to hold the kids' attention for most of our time so far, but they're starting to get distracted by the little baby that's crying, and so I said, let's stop and pray that God would help the little baby to stop crying. One of the things I'm trying to work on in my own prayer life is talking to God more regularly. Often I treat prayer as something that I do when all other options fail. Uh, after I try to fix everything of my own accord, then often I'll think about praying. But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be an example for the kids. We stopped and we prayed and we prayed that God would help the little baby to stop crying. And less than 30 seconds... After we said amen, the baby stopped crying, and all the children around the table were filled with smiles. Now, if you're a skeptic, you might think, well, that baby was going to stop crying in 30 seconds anyways, perhaps. Or perhaps God is faithful to answer prayer when his people ask. Now, I, I wanted to also take advantage of that, so I, I pointed it out to the little kids. Listen, God answered our prayers this little baby was crying, and he stopped crying. And then one of our, our studious church kids said, well, Pastor Hobson, actually, God answers all of our prayers. Sometimes he just says no, or maybe, or wait. This time he said yes. So, well, thank you, church kid. Thank you for correcting me. And then another child said with a smile on his face, I'm going to ask God to make it rain candy. As I thought about that exchange, it reminded me of two of the main pitfalls when it comes to prayer. On the one hand, if you're honest with yourself, some of you are like me, and you're prone to not ask. There's all sorts of reasons why we might be prone to not ask. Maybe we think God doesn't care about that particular thing I might ask him about, or he's too busy with other more important things or I'm too busy with other more important things, or it'll eventually work itself out if I just leave it alone, or let me try and fix it first. There's all sorts of reasons, but on the one hand, some of us are prone to not ask. On the other hand, like a child wanting it to rain candy, some of us are prone to ask selfishly. The pitfall we fall into is not that we don't ask, it's just that we ask for our own selfish desires and purposes. And these two pitfalls are clearly articulated by Jesus' half-brother James in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, where James writes, you do not have because you do not ask. There's the pitfall of not asking. 
and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. There's the, the pitfall of asking selfishly. Now, if you were with us last week when we began uh, going through the different lines of the Lord's Prayer, and we covered the, the first petition and the introduction, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. I shared with you my desire that God would use his word to grow in us a desire to want to pray. As God answers that prayer in your heart, Christian, what can happen in your heart is that the pendulum can swing from not asking to asking selfishly. Perhaps you've gone from, from not asking God for much of anything to asking Him to make it rain candy, metaphorically speaking. Or maybe you just don't want to ask selfishly, and so you figure it's better not to ask at all. I think what we need, brothers and sisters, is some guardrails that, that protect us from swinging from one extreme to the other. And I think that's exactly what we have in our text today. So if you're not already there, direct your attention in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. That will be our text for today, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Remember, Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is his famous Sermon on the Mount, and we are in the section where he is teaching his disciples how to pray. I want to remind you of something that I shared last Sunday. This is a prayer for Christians. It is the Christian who can call upon God as Father. Yes, there is a sense in which God is, is the creator of everyone and everything. That's absolutely true. And yet, he invites those who have been adopted into his family to call upon him as Father. So unless you have turned from your sins and put your trust in Christ, in the work of Jesus on the cross, not your works, then you are not yet ready to pray this prayer. But for everyone in this room or everyone watching this online or, or everyone studying this passage of Scripture, no matter how distant you feel from God in this moment, if your faith is in Christ and Christ alone, this prayer is always for you. And there will never be a moment, Christian, when God says, don't call me Father. And so we began last Sunday with that opening introduction, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, with a, this kind of foundational request above everything else that we ask, this, this request that actually animates everything else that we ask for, that God's name would be recognized as holy, that people would see how amazing He is. And then... Jesus says this in verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In these two prayer requests, I want you to see two guardrails, if you will, that protect us from the two pitfalls when it comes to prayer. Guardrails that will protect you from the pitfall of not asking 
and the pitfall of asking selfishly. So first of all, in our text, we see quite clearly that Jesus invites us to ask for his kingdom to come. Ask for his kingdom to come. The reason why we're sometimes tempted to ask selfishly is because we're focused on the wrong kingdom. We, we pray for, for my comfort, my happiness, my pleasure, my possessions, my schedule, my relationships, my health, and on and on and on we could go. Now, don't mishear me, Christian. I'm, I'm not saying that it's wrong to pray for those things. What, what, what's more at stake here, what's more important than the, the, the actual prayer request you bring to the Lord is what's animating what you're praying for? What's the kingdom that you're hoping will be built? Whose kingdom matters the most to you? Is it the kingdom of self, the kingdom of you, or the kingdom of God? Jesus says to pray to our Father, your kingdom come. So what is the kingdom of God? There's a little book, Gospel and Kingdom. A theologian named Graham Goldsworthy points out that a kingdom always has a king who rules, a people who are ruled, and a sphere where this rule is recognized as taking place. So he says simply, the, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. You see, the first picture of this idea of kingdom of God in the Garden of Eden, where our first parents, Adam and Eve, God's people, live in God's place, God, the Garden of Eden, and they live under God's rule. That's the kingdom of God. And yet what happens? A serpent enters into the garden. A fallen angel, Lucifer, Satan, enters into the garden to tempt Adam and Eve, our first parents. And he tempts them to doubt that their king is really a good king. And he tempts them to imagine what would it be like if you could take what you want, if you could live for your own kingdom, if your eyes could be open and you could be like him. He invites them to live for a different kingdom. See, Adam and Eve were doing more than just eating a piece of forbidden fruit. They were setting up a rebel, rival, rival kingdom. And that's what all of us do as Humanity, the entire human race. You are born into the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of self, the kingdom that you not only are born into, but you choose every single time you sin against God. But if you know the story of the Bible, you know that God doesn't give up on his humanity. He makes a promise to a guy named Abram that one day his descendants, God's people, will live in a new land, God's place, under God's rule. And yet, the entire story of the Old Testament is how God's people, even though, even when they have a place, they continue to rebel against God's rule until a preacher shows up on the scene in Palestine and he says in the beginning of Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven 
is at hand. Jesus begins his ministry saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. It's near. Now, here's a question I want you to ask of the text and ask of yourself. If When Jesus comes, if Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's here, then why does he tell you to pray that the kingdom would come? Which is it? Is the kingdom here or is it coming? Has the kingdom come or is it on the way? The answer is yes. It's both. The kingdom, in a sense, has come, and in a sense, it is still coming. The the kingdom has come. Look at Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. I think it's on the screen as well. The Pharisees asked Jesus when the kingdom of God would come, and he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. He doesn't say the kingdom of God will be in the midst of you, or I want it to be in the midst of you, or I hope it will be in the midst of you. He says it already is. Or in Colossians chapter 1, there's many other texts we can look at, but Colossians chapter 1 verse 13, Paul the apostle says this, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about you, Christian, that you have been delivered from the domain, the kingdom of darkness, and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. When we landed in Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas, after our month-long trip in Columbia to bring our son home, once we set foot on American soil, Ezekiel's citizenship transferred. Not exactly, because he's actually a dual citizen, but The moment he set foot on American soil, he became a citizen of the kingdom, if you will, of the United States of America. You, Christian, the moment you repented and believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the moment you were born again, your kingdom citizenship transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. Does it feel like you're in the kingdom of Christ right now? If you're honest, probably not. Maybe you had a bad week. Maybe you're hurting physically right now. Maybe you're going through deep emotional pain. And maybe there's all sorts of things that are troubling you. It does not feel like the kingdom of God is here all the time. And that's because even though the kingdom has come, the kingdom is coming. There is a sense in which the kingdom has begun, and yet it's not yet been fully realized. So so listen again to Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 to 43. Jesus says, the Son of Man will send his angels... And they would gather out out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let me ask you a question. Has Jesus put an end to sin and lawbreaking yet? Has, Has Jesus brought the saints into the Father's presence yet? No. 
This is a promise of a future coming kingdom. So the kingdom is, as some theologians say, already and not yet. It has been inaugurated, but it's not yet been consummated. At the coming of Christ, the, the, the kingdom of God broke in to the kingdoms of this world. And yet, it will not be fully experienced until the day that Jesus returns. Think of the kingdom of God like the sunshine. It's like the sun on a, a cloudy day. The sun is there. It's providing some measure of warmth, some measure of light, but the clouds are obstructing its view. And then over time, the clouds break, and the brightness and the warmth of the sun is visible at full strength. Let me ask you, has anything changed in the nature of the sun? No. It was there, present, and yet now, as the clouds break, it's fully realized. So, too, with the kingdom of God. At the coming of Christ, the kingdom of God began. It was inaugurated. It has come. And it will not yet be fully realized until the Son of God returns. Now, we're talking about prayer. So, what does any of this have to do with how we pray let me suggest two ways understanding the kingdom of God should affect how you pray. First of all, we should pray for the work of the church to advance. We should pray for the work of the church to advance. Remember our definition from Graham Goldsworthy? The kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. If God's people are Christians, those who have been born again, God's rule is his word, then what place do God's people have? What's our place? Where's our place? And the disciples really didn't understand this. And in Acts chapter 1, they come to Jesus and they ask this. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? John Calvin said about this text that there's as many errors in that sentence as there are words. The disciples really didn't understand the kingdom of God yet. They're, they're still looking for a national kingdom. They're looking for a local, physical kingdom. And Jesus says to them, no, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all Samaria and to the end of the earth. God's kingdom is not limited to one particular place. God's kingdom isn't Pocosin. It's not the United States. It's not where you're from. And yet, wherever God's people gather in what we call local churches, there is an expression of the kingdom of God. Think of it like an embassy in a, in a foreign country or, or an outpost of God's kingdom. And so when we pray, Jesus, let your kingdom come, we are praying, we are asking that the church would advance in her mission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that God has commanded us. So if you want to pray for God's kingdom to come, pray for churches. Pray for the local church. 
we pray for a church, our church, to be healthy. This is something we do at Pocosin Baptist Church every single Sunday. Every single Sunday, we pray something in our prayers about how we want God, how we're asking God to help us be healthy as a church. But you know what? We don't only pray for Pocosin Baptist Church. We rotate between praying for a sister church or one of our missionaries. This morning, we prayed for the Naps. Last Sunday, we prayed for Fox Hill Road Baptist Church. Some of you actually asked me because one of the things we prayed for was that their vote to install elders, to recognize elders in their church last Sunday night, that that would be affirmed by the congregation. And in fact, it was. Let me ask you a question. Could it be that God allowed that to be a positive landslide vote because his people were faithful to pray for it? Doesn't he say in his word, you do not have because you do not ask? So we pray. And, and listen, we want to pray for more than just the health of Pocosin Baptist Church because we want to see the kingdom of God advance wherever God's people are found. We don't think, by the way, for some of you that are our guests here this morning, we don't think that we're the only name in town. We don't think that we're the only ones that have it all right. We don't think that this is the only healthy church that you could be at on the peninsula. Now, if you're here, you're, you know, I'm not trying to send you away. Some of you are thinking, I'm just going to leave then. No, no, don't do that. I'm glad you're here. But listen, our heart is that wherever God's people gather, that those gatherings would be healthy and holy. A second implication of praying for the kingdom of God to come. One, it's praying for the work of the local church to be healthy. Two, it's praying for Jesus to return. It's praying for Jesus to return. One of the things uh, I've appreciated about uh, my brother Cliff Hall and staff meetings, one of the things that he said over and over again through the years is, the desire for heaven simply because of the freedom from sin. I don't know if there's anybody in this room that can relate to that. You know, just fed up with your sin. The more you draw near to Jesus, the more you follow him, the greater your hunger for heaven because there you will be free from even the desire for sin. That's a longing for the kingdom of God to come. When, when we pray for God to end injustice in this world, like sex trafficking or, 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 or against things like suicide or alcohol abuse or all the sorts of things that we pray for, we're praying for Jesus' kingdom to come. We're praying, Jesus, please return. This world is hard and it hurts and there's injustice and there's incredible, unspeakable evil. Jesus, will you return? It's good to pray that, that his kingdom would come and that you would be in his presence. Now, it's not wrong. It's not wrong, brother, sister, to pray for temporal things. 
It's not wrong to enjoy temporal things, things that don't last. It's not wrong to enjoy football or movies or music or food. It's not wrong to enjoy those things. What's wrong is when those good things become first things. A little bit later in this chapter, Jesus will tell us, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. What is the first thing that you're seeking for? Jesus says, let it be the kingdom of God. So we pray, your kingdom come. I think if we do that, if, as we learn to do that, we'll guard ourselves against asking selfishly. We'll learn to value God's kingdom above and beyond all the pretty things in this world. The second prayer that Jesus invites us to pray is to ask for his will to be done. Ask for his will to be done. I think the reason we're sometimes tempted not to ask at all is because we've misunderstood the relationship between our asking and God's doing. Now, there's a mystery here, Christian. You know, I, I mentioned the baby that stopped crying or the sister church that installed elders. Would those things have happened if God's people didn't pray? There's a mystery we don't know all of the inner workings of the mind of God. We are not meant to. But the Bible does clearly tell us that we do not have often because we do not ask. There is a temptation, especially among those who lean more Calvinistic in their thinking. There's a temptation to think about prayer fatalistically. That God's just going to do whatever God wants to do. If you're like me and you believe that God is, is sovereign over worms and whales and winds and waves and even the human will, if you believe in a massive, glorious God, you might sometimes be tempted to think, why does it even matter if I pray? Because God's going to do whatever he wants. But Jesus says to pray to our Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why does Jesus say to pray on earth as in heaven? How is God's will done in heaven? It's done by the angels, and it's done perfectly, joyfully, instantly, we could say. How is God's will done on earth? Well, it depends. It depends on what type of will we're talking about. The Bible actually refers to God's will in, in several different ways. We'll talk about the main two. Uh, the first is sometimes called God's will of decree. Whatever God decrees will happen, that's what happens. So for example, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Let me ask you a question. How many things are exempt from all things? Nothing. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That means everything that you've seen on the news that has startled you in the last month, from a slap at the Oscars, we had to talk about it at some point, right? To what's going on in Ukraine, 
to a thousand things in between. There is not one event, there is not one thing that has happened that is outside of the will of God, His will of decree. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10. God says of Himself, I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. All of it, he says. We're tempted sometimes to think that we can somehow let God off the hook if we say, Well, God, God didn't allow that, He didn't intend for that to happen. That wasn't His will. When the Bible talks about what we call God's will of decree, it's clear that there is nothing outside of His sovereign rule. He is sovereign over everything, and no one can thwart His purposes. Or Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases, all that He pleases. And these are just a handful out of dozens of scriptures I could take you to this morning that clearly teach that God has sovereign rule over everything. Here's another example. You remember the story of Joseph. Joseph is hated by his brothers. He's thrown into a pit. He's sold into slavery Eventually, he's reconciled with his brothers, and they go to Joseph after their father has died, Jacob, and, and they want to make sure that Joseph is not going to retaliate against them for what they did all those years before. And Joseph said, you sent me here, which you meant for evil, God meant for good. You had an intent, an evil intent behind your free actions to, to cause evil towards me. But God had another intent. God was, he's not merely allowing it to happen. He's purposing it. He's decreeing it. He's ordaining it. He is achieving his own sovereign will. And he's doing it for good to bring about the saving of many lives. This is a big and glorious God. In a sense, we could say then, God's will of decree is whatever happens. But, but if this is the only way that we are to think about God's will, then we would have little motivation to pray, would we? Because whatever we ask for is just God going to do whatever He wants to do. We'll be like the Calvinist who fell down the stairs and said, well, I'm glad that's over. Some of you will get that later. There is another way that the Bible talks about the will of God. The Bible talks about not only God's will of decree, but God's will of desire. This is also sometimes called God's revealed will or His will of command. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing or willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What is God's will for you, unbeliever? 
You're in this room. You're not a follower of Jesus. What's God's will for your life? That you repent and believe in Jesus. That's what he wants for you. That's his will for you. He wants you to trust Christ. But not every unbeliever does repent and believe, do they? This is God's will of desire. It's his revealed will, not his will of decree. Our First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. What is God's will for your life, Christian? What is God's will for your life, Christian? That you live a holy and pure life. That's his will for you. That's his will of desire. Does every Christian obey that? Sadly, no. And yet, it is what God desires for his people. We see both of these wills, God's will of decree and his will of desire. We see them kind of put pictured together in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, where the scripture says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. That's his will of decree. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, forever that we may do all the words of this law. That's God's will of desire. So God doesn't tell us all the details about what he is doing in the world. That's his business. Here's what he does tell us. He tells us how he wants to live, how he wants us to live. He tells us that he wants us to repent and believe and trust in Christ. He tells us how churches should be structured and, and how we should love one another and how we should pray. That's his revealed will, and our responsibility is to know and obey that. If we're honest, Christian, if we're honest, many of us spend far too much time trying to find out God's will of decree and far not enough time obeying his will of desire. The truth is, if we're honest, many of us are educated far beyond our obedience. We know a lot of Bible, but we don't obey what we know. So when Jesus tells you to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which one of these wills is he talking about? God's will of decree is done perfectly on earth and in heaven, right? God is in, in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It's always done perfectly everywhere. So here, Jesus is inviting us to pray that God would work in our lives a faithfulness to obey his revealed will, his will of desire, what he communicates to us in his word, that we would obey that with the joy and the swiftness and the consistency of even the angels in heaven. That's what Jesus is asking you to pray, that his will would be done in my life and in yours. So how should this affect how you pray, Christian? I would encourage you, Christian, you can boldly, boldly ask your Father for anything that is consistent with His revealed Word. Boldly come to Him and ask Him. So for example... 
you can boldly ask God to take away your husband's desire to lust because you know that is consistent with God's word. You can boldly ask God to take away your desire to escape suffering with a substance because you know that's consistent with his word. You can boldly ask God to help you to forgive because you know that's consistent with his revealed word. You can boldly ask God even to help you fall asleep earlier on Saturday night so you're a little bit more engaged on Sunday morning because you know that's consistent with his word. You can boldly come to him and ask him to soften the heart of a divisive brother or sister because you know that's consistent with his word. This is an invitation, Christian, for you to creatively and joyfully and boldly come to God and ask him for anything consistent with what he's already told you in his word. You can pray and ask God to help you to love that person that's really hard to love. Because you know that God tells you to do it anyways. You say, God, please help me to love that person with the obedience that is displayed by the angels in heaven. Help me to love. You can boldly ask God to save a loved one who doesn't believe the gospel. Because it's God's desire that not any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You can even ask boldly that God would bring healing in your life to you or a spouse or a family member so you can continue to serve the Lord together. And you can even boldly come before God and ask a ba- that a baby would stop crying. So you can, in a room of kids, teach them truth from God's word. Now, in all of these things, though, we come boldly before our Father, but also humbly recognizing that we sometimes think we know what we need or think we know what we want or think we know what would be best. And the truth is that we're often wrong. A couple of weeks ago in our fellowship group, one of the things we talked about was if anyone had a prayer request that they asked God, something they asked God for, and he, he, he said no, and they were glad about it. I wonder if you think about that in your own life. Have there ever been things that you asked God for and in the moment you thought that would be great if God would just do that and now that you look back, you're grateful that God said no. God knows what we need better than we do. So we come boldly, but we come humbly. Nobody better demonstrated this than Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is about to be betrayed and handed over to Pilate for, uh, for his crucifixion. He, he knows what's going to happen. He knows he's going to die. Several times he's already prophesied to his disciples that the Son of Man is going to die. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He planned this before the foundation of the world with the Father and the Spirit that he would come in the fullness of time, born of a virgin, to redeem those under the law. He knew exactly what's going to happen, and yet he gets on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating like drops of blood, and he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. 
He boldly asks. Why does he pray that? He knows the answer will be no. Why does he pray that? Because in his humanity, that's what he wants. He he doesn't want to face the wrath of his father. Jesus doesn't feel the need to censor himself before he comes to God in prayer. He prays what he actually wants in in his human flesh, in his human nature. And yet, even though he boldly asks, Father, let this cup pass from me. He humbly submits, not my will, but yours be done. Are you willing to pray like that, Christian? If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what Jesus endured for you. The full weight of God's wrath against sin fell on Christ on the cross and your place. And that is your only hope. Not being good enough, not trying hard enough, but Christ. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, this example is given for us. Avoid the pitfall of not asking. You don't need to censor yourself before you come to the Father. You can come to Him with the real you You can ask boldly of things that sometimes he'll say no to. You can bring your real self with your real desires to your father. And yet, don't ask selfishly. Say, not my will, but yours be done. Have that posture in your prayer that whatever you ask for, you will trust that God will do what is best. I'm going to invite you, if you will, to bow your heads. And we're going to sing in just a moment. But before we do, I I just feel led for us to have some time to bring our requests humbly and boldly before the Lord. I don't know what the Lord might have put on your heart in this moment this morning. I don't know the things that might be burdening you today. But I'm going to just take a minute or two and just invite you to pray right where you are. Moment of silence. Pray humbly and boldly before your Father, whatever it is you want to ask Him. And then conclude that prayer by asking that His will would be done.